Welcome to the world of digital sound. Hey there, good people of the internet. Welcome, welcome. It was a bit late then, sorry. Um, this is Ken. This is the Ken Burton Podcast Stories 1990s. And uh, this is another one in quick succession because uh, I am at home self-isolating like the rest of the world is self-isolating. Oh my God, it's going to kill me. Um, so, uh, yeah, so to lighten the mood, to get away from everybody's dribs and drabs and woes, I thought I'd do another podcast story. A um, lot of response after the last one, uh, <laughs> huge amount of hits, but I guess there's a lot of people at home. Uh, the figures I got uh, <laughs> were quite, quite staggering, really, really quite staggering. Um, in the first 24 hours of the podcast going up, the last one, 10,000 people had downloaded it and uh, that's a lot that's a lot a lot from um, abroad Uh, America was quite quite prevalent and uh, thank you my American followers Um, a lot of people in Eastern Europe and uh, you know as far afield as Australia and New Zealand uh, Tasmania uh, <laughs> it was all over the place. It was everywhere. Um, quite a few from Spanish places as well. But uh, there you go. Um, and <laughs> get this. I was contacted. Um, and uh, can I say too much about this? I don't know how much of this I can say. Let me adjust the mic. Hold on. How much of this can I say? Uh, I was contacted by one of the guys that I met on holiday in uh, Mallorca, um, who was one of the Welsh crew. And um, he, he basically he basically just said, you know, you, you kind of left in a hurry. We didn't really understand what was going on. And now I understand. And if you ever want to come back, you know, uh, you know where we are sort of thing. And he, he clued me up on a couple of the guys and what they were doing now. And, you know, so it was it was really good. It was really good. Uh, <laughs> some of the things he said in that email. Jesus Christ. He contacted, he got hold of me on LinkedIn um, and he said, uh, hi, it's such and such. Can you send me your email address? So I was like, yeah, OK, this would be interesting to see what it's like. So anyway, um, yeah. So that occasionally happens, occasionally happens. Although having said that, a couple of people um, contacted me in the past and said uh, that particular story you told, well, that was me that was featured in this particular aspect of it. And um, you, um, uh, you knew me as this and, you know, you called me this in your podcast, but it was, it was definitely... And I, I kind of, I've, I've looked at that contact and gone, well, that's sort of bullshit because the guy, <laughs> the guy who I've mentioned in the podcast, um, this particular person, I knew for a fact had died. So <laughs> there he is coming back from the grave to say, hello, it's me. I'm uh, such and such. I'm living in Liverpool now and all the rest of it. I'm like, you bullshitting twat. Oh, God. So, anyway, um, so we left the last podcast on <laughs> something of a cloud, really, because we'd, we'd kind of reached the end of, uh, of any semblance of normality and life. I, I need to do the uh, disclaimer. Go to YouTube channel, Ken Burton UK, and you will get the trailer on my channel, which is my disclaimer, which basically says that any all parts of this podcast are fiction unless otherwise stated. Uh, none of the characters in this podcast um, resemble anybody living or dead. They're all fictional characters, right? I have to say that. I'm sorry, but I do. Uh, because I've been legally challenged in the past. <laughs> And I've been threatened <laughs> a couple of times now, a couple of times. Um, but anyway, so the last podcast, I had uh, gone through my drug phase. I had um, 
basically been robbed of all my money. I didn't have a pot to piss in. And I am back home with my parents. And uh, I am completely desolate. I, I've got literally the clothes I'm standing up in. Um, and a worn out pair of trainers. I got two t-shirts and I'll tell you how bad it was when when I got back um, my mum said you know I need to I need to wash your clothes uh, they're not great uh, I was right okay and I didn't actually have anything to get changed into <laughs> one pair of jeans and I was wearing them so um, I had to go and uh, put a dressing gown and put my dad's dressing gown on and sit in my room while my mum cleaned my clothes Oh, it's horrendous. They were great over that period um, when things had become really, really difficult. And uh, they uh, gave me what they could. Uh, they're not rich people, um, but they gave me a couple of hundred quid just to uh, just to keep me going. And that was that was a lot of money to them. Still is, I think. But um, yeah, I'd kind of, I kind of reached the end of it. I think mentally, physically, emotionally, um, I was, I was broke uh, in every sense of the word. And um, I stayed in the spare room at Mum and Dad's, and just I spent about a week just watching telly and. Um, taking sleeping pills, my mum's sleeping pills, because uh, I couldn't sleep, and I wouldn't leave the house. Well, a week in, and uh, my mum came upstairs and said, um, there's someone here. And I was like, really? Okay, here we go. And so I went down. And um, there was a guy there that I kind of knew. He wasn't one of my drinking buddies, but he'd certainly been on jobs with us. He was connected with a, a crew that ran out of uh, Nuneaton, Hinkley sort of area. And uh, the reason why I knew him is because these guys did um, uh, car cloning, basically. They were an outfit that stole cars, cloned them, and then um, sold them, or took them up north and sold them, or took them down south and sold them. So um, that's how I knew him, because quite often it was the case that I might be asked by somebody, can you go and take a car over to uh, the farm up in Hinkley? And I would go, I would take a car, and that's that's how I got to know this guy. Now, I'm going to call this guy Tom. His name wasn't Tom, but I'm going to call, his, call him Tom. And uh, I was a bit shocked to see him, really. I, did, I mean, I, we weren't mates, mates. We, we got on all right. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't kind of class this as mates. And he was the last person I expected to see, to be frank. Well... I got him in the front room and the two of us sat down and I, I cracked a beer and uh, he basically said, you know, I've been I've been following what's been going on. Um, and he, as we got to talking, he was telling me how jealous he was um, back in the 80s, back in the day, because I ran with this great bunch of people. I seemed to have everything. Um, the flat, the girls, the mates, the money, and um, how he kind of aspired to be like me, although, or or like me, or one of the boys, you know, it, and um, it was it was just really interesting. I had no idea. I had no idea. So, but th then again, we've all got our heroes, haven't we? we? We've all got people that we admire, people that we aspire to be. Um, growing up for me, I, I had a cousin um, who 
<laughs> he was he was incredible uh my perfect cousin he um he looked he had the looks of a greek god right <laughs> he was brilliant at football he had a great circle of mates um he had a good job you know he had, he was just and he always said the right thing and did the right thing and he was he was he was one of my heroes um and do you know funny funny enough he will never know what a profound effect he had on my life when something happened to him and uh it it shook me to the core he lost somebody very close to him him and his wife and i went to the funeral and I'd been to a lot of funerals and I was kind of emotionless at that point but his loss became my loss and I couldn't stop thinking about it for months I was I was devastated by his loss I was devastated by by good honest people like these I mean people like me yeah you expect it you lose your mates, um, you can lose yourself, you can, you know, shit happens in my world. But him, I just, I genuinely couldn't believe it. I just, I just couldn't. And I struggled with it. I did struggle with it. And I guess at the end of it, I think my conclusion was that I, I maybe became a little more empathetic a little more tolerant of those around me and if there's one thing i've learned it's that you never know what shit somebody else is going through you just don't and that's that's always been at the back of my mind and that that kind of ties into this story really so um what do i call him tom <laughs> i nearly used his real name then so tom uh said to me look um i don't know what your situation is what you can do next he said but if you want to work then uh we've got a spot for you at the farm and uh i was like right okay what, what do you want me to do he said well just help us out he said you you can uh he said what we do is this we we get the car in um and the car will be taken to order. So somebody somewhere very north, like um, Glasgow, Edinburgh, somewhere like that, or maybe somebody on the Isle of Wight or whatever, or Guernsey, they, they, will, um, they will take the details of a car. So it might be that it's a BMW 3 Series, it's um, red, and it looks like this. And then the boys have a network of people who will scour car parks and look for an exact same car. So what they do is they then nick the car, take it to the farm and strip the car um, of uh, all its chrome and all its trim and everything. And then they spray it. Now, the reason why they spray it is and they it's very clever really the way it's done but um the police will be out looking for a cherry red bmw right so what you do is you spray the car burgundy and put the plates on it and as far as the logbook's concerned as far as the police concerned it's a red bmw but the owner he will look at the car and go no it's not mine because it's a different color so you see um so <clears throat> we make up our own vin plates as well vehicle identification number plates which are they used to be i know they're a sticker now but they used to be a metal plate that was um actually um riveted to the car and you you blank out the rivets and put a new plate on it and you know and then what they do is when they've sprayed it and it's all been done, they'll then take it somewhere miles away from where it came from. So 
it won't be a local card. They might take it to Wales. They might take it to um, take it to the East Coast and sell it. Um, false logbook. There would be a and the car is absolutely straight. You know, it's it's straight. Only there's two of them because <laughs> you've cloned a car. Now, what what you hope for? I mean, how how often do you think? these two cars would ever come into proximity of each other they just wouldn't they just wouldn't and the only time really that that it, it comes on top um and people find out that their car's stolen is if the the other guy goes through a speed camera or something like that and you think you know yes you've got a picture of my car going through a speed camera but i wasn't there <laughs> and that ain't me driving it and my car's still on the drive so that that's how you find out. But the, the boys are long gone. The guys that sold it are long gone since then. Um, but that's where it happened. And it was almost like a factory, this place. So um, very grateful for Tom's offer. Uh, I said to him, well, um, first thing, I ain't got any wheels, Tom. And uh, not only that, but I've got absolutely no fucking money. And he was like, right, okay, well, don't worry about that. We'll get that sorted. Uh, are you in? And um, I, I kind of was looking for an ulterior motive. I kind of thought, I mean, these guys are operating, operating with the full knowledge of the family. And if you've never listened to one of these podcasts, then you need to go back and see who the family were. But... Um, I don't know, the ulterior motive, I, I kept looking for it all the time. Couldn't find it, couldn't find it. But it just seemed like gift horse, you know. And I, I was just kind of thinking there's something not quite, you know. Anyway, um, following day, uh, Tom said he picked me up, right? And eight o'clock in the morning, sure enough, Tom's outside and he's got a car. So we get in his car and we go to the farm. And we arrive at the farm. Everybody there is really pleased to see me. Handshakes, you know, um, smiles everywhere. And they take me in the office and I speak to the boss. And the boss says, right, he says what we do. He says, well, you know what we do. You know how we do it. Um, now your role will be anything that you want it to be. He said you can um, assist with going out and getting the cars. You can uh, you can stay here if you want. If you want to lie low, he said, and you can detrim the car. He said, and uh, he said, how are you offer paint spraying. I said, well, funny enough, I'd probably in my life at that point, I'd probably painted five cars um in my dad's garage uh for various reasons and um some mine some not mine but i'd painted five cars so i knew how to paint a car and uh he said well that's fucking brilliant he said you can you can help out with the spraying and uh he said what we'll do he said uh tom tells me you haven't got a car there's a car outside you can have and uh, use that until you get yourself on your feet and we'll pay you a grand a week. Um, and there was just no way that I was going to get a better offer than that. <laughs> it was just never going to happen. A, a thousand pound a week is is fucking gravy at that point. So um shook his hand, went outside, put my overalls on, went to work. Well... I was probably there um, three, four weeks and uh, we're all working together. We're all getting on really well. Um, there's uh, there's probably about 10 people working there. And, um, you know, we do an excellent job of what we do. You know, there, there are guys doing the um, DVLA documents, the V5s. Um, sat in the office there there are guys making up the vin plates um, I, I mainly was trimming and uh, masking and spraying 
uh, and I must admit, I, I quite enjoyed it. I quite enjoyed it. It it just seemed, and I know this sounds stupid, it just seemed like honest work. <laughs> it was far from honest. <laughs> there was nothing honest about it, but it just seemed like honest work. Well, after being there for probably about a month, um, I... I forewent for my salary one particular month and uh, bought the car that they'd lent me. Uh, and it was, it was fine. It was bent. I mean, the car, <laughs> it was, it was definitely bent, but you know, it was a car. So um, anyway, th this kind of, uh, this kind of daily routine was was working really well and then we we had we had tea breaks i mean it was just it was just like working at a normal place we had tea breaks and lunch breaks and um the sandwich van would come round. you know <laughs> nobody had a clue what we were doing it was brilliant well as i say i was about i was there about a month and um jag pulls up outside uh the big boss goes out and he's talking to this bloke. I couldn't see who he was from where I was. Uh, suited and booted, but that's all I knew. And um, <laughs> then the boss shouted my name. And I thought, fuck. This, this was all too good to be true. It, it was it was going to end you know and I was always waiting for it well I went outside and the closer I got um, the more I started to recognise the guy in the jag flanked by two other people he was a member of the family um, he was effectively I hate using these terms because it's all a bit sopranos but he was he was one of the lieutenants right let's call him that and um, the uh, the boss went back to his office, um, and I went up to talk to this guy. And I'd not, I'd, I knew him, knew him. He occasionally, occasionally it was him that gave us the work. Um, and he he said, uh, "I hear you've been on your travels." <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, just a bit." And he said, "Well." fuck are you doing here I said look I I hit the bottom end of you know where I could be what I could do I said I need the money um, I need um, I need some stability for a little while and the kindest thing happened the kindest thing he offered me a job as a driver now they never did that you had to be in in with the family to get a job with them and I just thought it was yeah I mean I'd done some work for them but it was all fag end work you know it was it was nothing major yeah occasionally occasionally I had reason to pull a gun occasionally I had reason to pull the trigger um, on behalf of the family but you know I didn't expect that well um, I asked him if I could think about it and he said to me well I'll tell you what you do he said you turn up tomorrow morning at the house at 9 o'clock with your suit on and I'll have your answer. And if you don't turn up, no worries. Don't worry about it. You carry on doing what you're doing. And if you do change your mind, you contact us. And then uh, he went to get back in his car. I thanked him. And he went, oh, uh, just one other thing. And he looked at one of, one of his... Um, one of his guys um, 
I mean, both the guys he was with were in, were in forces. And I'd, I'd, I'd known both of them. They knew who I was. I knew who they were. And uh, this guy reached into his jacket. And for a second, <laughs> I thought, he's going to fucking pop me. <laughs> I'm going to get the bullet in the head. <laughs> and instead of that, he pulls out an envelope. And he handed it to me. And the lieutenant said, there was something, just keep going. That's kindest fucking thing ever. It was the kindest gesture. It was amazing. And I, despite the fact that my my reputation had been ruined, my my life as I knew it had been taken away from me. Um, here he is, like being so pragmatic about the whole thing. It was just incredible. Five grand in the envelope, um, which allowed me to then rent a flat, um, which I did in Nuneaton, which was probably four minutes drive to the farm every day. I didn't go to the house. Um, I didn't take the job. But I did carry on working at the farm. And then <laughs> we had a bit of a problem. One of the guys that worked there from Nuneaton, his daughter had become pregnant. His daughter was 16, only just. Her boyfriend was 18. Her father worked with us at the farm and he disappeared for two days. Right? Everyone was saying, where is, where is he, where is he? And the boss was saying, don't worry, I've been, in talk I've been talking to him. He's okay, he's got a bit of a problem. And um, he came back in after the third day, told us all, about this um, and there were various suggestions you know she'd only just turned 16 therefore uh, he must have fucked her when she was 15 therefore statutory rape blah blah therefore go to the police well this wasn't the sort of guy that would ever go to the cops under any circumstances but what he did want to do was break the guy's legs um, the, the daughter wouldn't get rid of the kid she was flatly refusing the mother um she absolutely supported the decision to keep the kid the father quite rightly i think was trying to tell her it was going to ruin her life and she really needed to think hard as to whether or not she wanted to have a baby at 16 um, so it, it was all a bit, it was all a bit emotional, really. Every conversation we had, every break we took, every lunch break, everyone was talking about this. That's all that anyone was ever talking about. And the father decided that um, after a conversation with this lad, because the lad had apparently come round the house to to face the mother and father. And he hadn't been round since it had been announced. And um, it all got a bit kind of out of hand. I think the, um, the guy I worked with, the father, he became a bit physical. Uh, the lad became a bit defensive and there was a bit of to and fro in. Well, the bright idea turned up that the father should get three or four of us together 
anyone who's capable and put this guy in a van uh, take him somewhere and God knows what I'm not sure if they wanted to kill him I don't know if they just wanted to break his legs um, I do no idea I said that I wasn't going to take part I wasn't going to get involved there was, there was a really good reason for that the thought occurred to me these two had been going out together since she was about 14 he's probably been fucking it since she was about 14 this wasn't rape obviously she wasn't on any contraception obviously he couldn't put a jacket on you know it, it was just that they both took a risk and it ended up with them both losing they gambled and they lost but it wasn't rape it takes two and I'm sorry but at 16 years old 15 years old girls know their own mind they're not stupid none of the ones I met were, were ever stupid they did stupid things but they were never stupid and so it's kind of the whole it takes two to tango thing that was going through my head his daughter should take as much blame for this as the lad that wasn't a popular opinion <laughs> so anyway over the next couple of days they they put wheels in motion as to how they were going to do this um they managed to get hold of a van uh put false plates on it van was boarded inside transit van um they knew where they were going to take him and then there wasn't a great deal of talk about what they were going to do with him but it got to a point that it was going to happen that night and it struck me that they were going to kill him now i'd never met this lad i didn't know who he was i'd never met this guy's daughter i didn't know who she was but it just seemed grossly fucking unfair that this was going to happen i mean if this lad's a scumbag then he's a scumbag and you know but from what i was told um he'd finished a college course he <laughs> he was um he was working as a administrator in an office this this kid's not a scumbag He's working fucking hard, getting ready to prepare. And he wanted to stand by her. He wanted to marry her. He offered to marry her. You know, this, this wasn't a reason to kill him. It just wasn't. But uh, that was the impression I got, that they were going to off this kid. Um, the father just didn't want this kid in her life. I'm going to smoke, by the way. I do smoke during these podcasts. Um, and it's not easy because I'm smoking roll-ups now. And as I'm talking, the roll-up goes out. And I, you've got to relight it. And then I start coughing. And it, oh, God, it's a nightmare. Hold on, relight up. Mmm. Smoky. So, I'm in a bit of a quandary, really, at, at this point. Because... It's not my problem. <laughs> Why would I get involved? Why would I bother? Plenty of people end up dying through no fucking fault with their own. I mean, it was so difficult. Anyway, I went in and talked to the boss uh, about a car we were doing. And I said... Uh, where do you stand on all this? All this shit going on tonight? And he, he was kind of more sort of concerned that 
if anything went tits up, it would bring heat down onto the operation of the farm. Um, but he said, there's no, there's no fucking talking to him. You're not going to talk him out of it. Just not. Um, and I, I just, I was at a loss. I didn't know what to do. So, um, I couldn't keep out of it. I should have kept out of it. And I couldn't fucking keep out of it. So I said to the boys that afternoon, I said, you still doing this tonight? I said, yeah. I said, count me in. And they were like, I mean, they knew my history. And they, they were, they were kind of like quite excited by it. You know, oh, Ken's coming. Ken's coming. That's all right, you know, Ken. Because if anyone loses it, you know, Ken's, Ken, Ken will do it. Ken will do him. He's got form, you know. He he he, he ran with the boys. He can do it. Seven o'clock that night, uh, we met up at the farm. We got in the van and we went to uh, this street in Nuneaton. The father had spoke to the kid and arranged to meet him. They wanted to, he said he wanted to talk it through. So the kid came out of his house and uh, he was 100 yards down the road and he, he got grabbed. Uh, sack over his head um gaffer taped his arms behind his back put him in the van gaffer taped his legs um they gaffer taped around the sack because when you when you see this on telly you know it's it's not this it's just not right when you when you see somebody and in the sopranos and they want to keep him quiet so they put tape over his mouth um that, that, that's not the way to do it you put a sack over over his head and then you tape over the sack and the sack muffles the the sound anyway but here i am in a van transit van we're driving off to some fucking warehouse or somewhere and um this kid's shitting himself i mean he's we get to where we're going I didn't recognise the place. I couldn't see where we were. But it was a barn. And uh, they took him in this barn. The barn's fucking miles away from anywhere. I mean, it must have been a hay storage place or something. Uh, there was crap all over the place. Farm equipment and whatever. And it wasn't near any, any houses anywhere. And... Um, they sat this guy on a hay bale uh, and then took the hood off him and then out from the passenger seat well of this van uh, they bring out uh, three or four I don't know if they were truncheons or rounders bats if you're if you're out of the uk and you don't know what rounders is it's like a child's version of baseball and the bat is about 18 inches long it's still a wooden bat um but look it up on the internet go go and look up at rounders It's a game you play in junior school. Uh, they bring these bats out. And um, they take the hood off the kid and then the kid can see what's coming. And he's told not to scream because no one's going to fucking hear him anyway. And the bloke starts telling him how his life's over what you did, you fucking raped my daughter, what do you expect, you know, and this kid pissed himself, 
Literally. Literally. Stood there and watched it. Kid pissed himself. And I was just... I just felt for this kid. I just did. And I thought, there for the grace of God, go the fucking rest of us. You hypocritical fucks. You utter cunts. You, you've you all done this. You've all fucked a girlfriend. You've all had sex under the age of 16. Or with somebody under the age of 16. There's not a person in that barn that hadn't done what this kid did. The only difference was he got caught. And then they they approach the kid with this bat. And they're all talking about what to do. And none of them knew what to do. I mean, they were, they were fucking amateurs. If this was the family, Jesus Christ, it had been done properly. But, um... And you, you could tell they were... Oh, the first... The first blow, which came over the head of this kid oh sorry some fuck's got a lawnmower out let me close the window hold on noisy bastard so the first blow went over the head of this kid um it it was it was a hesitant strike that's the only way i can describe it and it wasn't done by the father. It was done by uh, one of the lads. And I think he shocked himself after he hit this kid. I mean, these these weren't violent people, you know. And then the father grabbed the bat. And um, he went to hit the kid. And he he was doing it out of anger, um, which is different. He, again, is not a violent person, but anger can do things to people that, you know, you would not believe. Um, I once watched a guy who was probably the the weakest, most pleasant guy you'd ever wish to meet and because he'd been shot at and absolutely scared to fucking death when everyone else managed to take down the guys that were doing the shooting he went over and just started punching the guy in the face that had shot at him and I, I never see anything like it I mean he he was fist after fist and he was the fucking weediest politest guy you'd ever wish to meet really couldn't get my head around it but anger will do things to people I've been angry you know I, I've lost it because I'm angry the mist has descended and I've gone into somebody that I that I shouldn't have gone near but the father stepped forward and I I saw the look in his eyes and I just I just thought, well, I didn't think. So I stepped in between him and the kid. And I just said, look, this ain't the way. This ain't the way to deal with this. And one of the other guys that was there, he, he said, um, he said, no, I, I don't want to be a part of this. And the father was quite, he was quite adamant that he was going to fuck this guy up. And so he pushed me to the side. And then went towards the kid with the bat raised above his head. If he'd have hit him over the head with that bat, the way that he was, he, he was going to cause permanent damage. So I got up and uh, 
charged at him um, and rugby tackled him got him on the ground and just said you need to stop this this ain't the way uh, <laughs> next thing I know somebody's punched me and there were shouts of get the fuck off him and I'd been punched in the back of the head and then I've got two guys one each side of me holding my arms <sighs> there wasn't wasn't a great deal I could do. He hit this kid um, across the side of his head, split his head open. Um, blood started coming down from this. The kid was, he was fucking out of it, mate. He was, he wasn't knocked out, but he was dazed to fuck. He didn't know what day it was. And I, I said to the two guys holding me, get the fuck off me. One of them let go. And the other one didn't. And um, I punched him in the face. Which he wasn't expecting. Right in the middle of his nose. And he put his hands to his face. And backed off. One of the other guys came towards me and he got a bat in his hand. He definitely wasn't a fucking fighter. He got it raised above his <laughs> got it raised above his head, uh, ready to bring down this bat on top of me. Well you leave yourself wide fucking open. So I punched him as well. And um he felt the ground and then the father who still had the bat in his hand angry as fuck came at me and again raised the bat uh, leaving himself wide open and I kicked him in the bollocks uh, not a nice thing to do in fact a pretty fucking horrendous thing to do that is the dirtiest of dirty fighting mate you never do that never but he was bigger than me the guy that had agreed with me he's there shouting enough enough this is fucking madness enough And um, all three of them that I'd hit um, were now up. And I'm thinking, I'm going to get my ass kicked. <laughs> they are going to fuck me up. And I was looking for exits. Uh, I was looking for a way out and there wasn't one. There was only the barn doors and then a door within the barn doors which were now closed and between me and the door was stood everybody and I stood next to this kid and I said to him don't worry out. Don't worry, it's going to be okay. And I said, I said to the father and the other guys who were stood there, if you do this, you'll live with it. And every morning you wake up, you'll think about it. Every night before you go to sleep, you'll think about it. You'll dream about this moment. 
it will haunt you for the rest of your fucking lives. You think that you can do this and walk away, you are joking. And it doesn't matter if you get caught or not. Because you'll be living in your own little prison, in your heads. You're not killers. Trust me, I know killers. And you're not it. The, uh, the, the father put his back down. And they all walked towards the um, door following him. And away they went. I heard the transit van go. I didn't know where it was. I'm there with a kid bleeding out of his head, dazed as fuck. I um, took the tape off him. I had considered just leaving him, to be honest, but I took the tape off him. Got him off uh, the hay bale and the two of us uh, started to walk down the dirt track. Well, for some reason, uh, the mobile phone that I got with me, I had absolutely no signal. And I kept checking and checking and checking. And eventually when we got to the road, I managed to get a signal. And I phoned the only person I could trust. And that was the boss. And uh, he came out to us. We drove... Um, we drove into Coventry because um, we didn't want to use local hospitals. And we turn up at casualty, dropped him off, dropped this lad off. And I told this lad, if you know what's good for you, you are going to say that you fell off a fucking barn roof or something. Make it up. And um, he went in, uh, and that was the last time I saw him. Well, I, I'd left some, I knew my job was finished. I knew it was. But I'd left some of my belongings at, at uh, the farm. So the uh, following day, I went down there to go and get them. Um, as I drove up, Everybody stopped work. Everybody's fucking looking at me. And nobody said anything. I, I just said, look, I just need to pick a few bits up. Everyone was there, including the boss. And they weren't new. They weren't new, I couldn't stay. And I went to, uh, got my gear, went to get back in the car. And somebody shouted, you fucking coward. I was like, coward? How did they get coward out of that? And the boss, he was... Um, He was quite uh, upset by the whole thing, I think. But I got in my car and I left and I went back uh, to the place I'd rented and uh, got my gear. Uh, it was coming towards the end of a month anyway. Just packed my gear, put it in the car I couldn't go home. I, could, I couldn't go back to my mum and dad's, not again. So um, 
I didn't really want to go that far. So I went to uh, rugby. Um, I made a few phone calls, checked out a few places, managed to get uh, get a bed sit near the town centre above a shop. Parking for the car around the back, perfect. And then contemplated my next move. Difficult thing was I didn't I didn't know what the next move was or could be, uh, on the basis that I I couldn't trust myself. Couldn't trust myself to stay out of other people's issues, other people's problems. I couldn't I couldn't stay away from things. And it, I didn't know if it was a case of injustice or what it was. And I, I never did find out what the situation was, whether or not they went back and did kill this kid um, or what happened. I know that the old man was a bit of a dickhead for what he did. Um, and he was acting more on... <laughs> he was acting more like a moron, but he was acting more on what other people would think rather than going with his gut. And I understood it, but it wasn't right. And if, if they got any sense, this kid and the girl would have got them got together and fucked off somewhere and I do hope they did I do hope they just packed their bags and fucked off but I, I never got to find that out I toyed with the idea for a good week or so of going to work for the family going to work as a driver and then uh, one night I'm getting some food and I went to a pub and I met somebody who um, I'd known for a little while back in the Coventry days um, and he made this amazing suggestion and uh, the suggestion was doing what he'd done for the past year he was on the run from the cops um, and as it happens the case the case blew anyway so he was able to come back but he spent a year being completely anonymous on a little island, a Spanish island, I won't tell you too much about it, but he was um, basically breaking ships. Uh, and all he did was sort through wiring looms, taking the copper out of wiring looms. Um, and he got paid on a daily basis. You go you go to the uh, entrance of this place and they give you a ticket and uh, there's one way in one way out it's a manned gate you go in you're told who to report to uh, you do your job on the way out you get paid and the more I thought about that the more I thought this is me. This is me. Nobody fucking knows me. You know, um, I'm I'm going to be completely anonymous. I can even change my name, and no one is going to give a shit. 
and I started gearing up for that. I was going to be going in a week's time and I was getting everything together. So all the money I had, um, went back and paid the parents what I owed them, uh, put the car up for sale so I could get rid of it. Um, got as far as booking my ticket. And it was going to be <clears throat> it was going to be a little bit of a smuggler's route because uh, I took a plane into one place and then I was going to have to take a boat from that place to another place. And I was geared up and I was ready to go. And then something happened that changed everything. And that's the subject of the next podcast story. I do hope you've enjoyed this one, guys. Um, comments are very welcome in the comments section. And uh, as ever, as you know, I will see you on the dark side. Take care. Welcome to the world of digital sound. Shutting down all shoes.